Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 tonight and we'll dismiss our children. Go with Brother Baker over to the fellowship hall. We'll be in Philippians 2. We looked at Philippians 2 Sunday night and said it's probably one of the best Christmas passages because of it explaining the reason why Christ came, how He came, what was involved in His coming. And so we looked at the first portion of that Sunday night and we're going to look at the next portion here tonight. There are basically two sections here. In verses 1 through 4, he gave us the idea of uh, unity and the need for that. He gives us in this passage four examples. Christ is the first example. But then he goes into verse number 5 with this mind. Let this mind be in you. And then he describes what mind. In verse 6 through 8 that we looked at Sunday, we looked at the humility of Christ. Christ humbled himself in heaven. He humbled himself when he came to this earth. He humbled himself as he went to the cross. We cannot understand the coming of Christ without understanding the significance of the cross. And then we see in verse number 9, he has this word, wherefore. And he's tying that first section of Christ's humility with this next section of verses 9, 10, and 11 that deal with the exaltation of Christ, the, the uplifting of Christ, letting us see Christ for who He is and how the Father rewarded Him because of His humility. So let's do this. Let's stand together, please. And we'll read these verses beginning in verse number 5 through verse number 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tonight, I just want us to cap off this great passage after seeing Christ humbling himself. Tonight we're going to see the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Please be seated. I still say that Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. It's almost as though though we're on holy ground when reading these verses and approaching this incredible passage and text. And it seems to have a, a structure of unity that, that presents God in eternity at the beginning of this and it ends with God in eternity. And verse 9 is kind of that hinge verse and that says God hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. We could listen to many sermons 
read many books written on these passages. But I don't want us to necessarily look at it from a microscopic standpoint as much from a telescopic point of view. There's a lot of doctrine here, as we've said, but there's also a lot of practicality in the nature of this. Because here it emphasizes the stunning humility of Jesus Christ, who became a servant, died on behalf of sinners to the glory of God. And as a result of what he did on the cross and the resurrection, we're finding the emphasis here on his exaltation as king. He is our savior, but he's also our example. In these verses, we find a lot of similar words used in the early verses. Verse 2, like mind. In verse 5, he uses the word mind. Consider in verse number 3. And... Um, uh, the emphasis of verse 6, the Lord uh, did not think it to be robbery, to be equal with God, using a lot of the same words, lowliness, humility, and it's referring to Jesus. Jesus gives us the perfect example and the mindset that we need to be humble in order that we might be able to be of greatest help to others. Remember Jesus in John 13 gave us that great example of serving where he humbled himself. He took the towel, he knelt down and he washed the disciples' feet. He didn't just give us the example of, of serving what it looks like, but he's also giving us the example of how it is that we are to help others, help communicate truth. By serving. And Christ was there communicating quite a bit of truth there in the upper room. And here Paul is communicating quite a bit of truth to us as well while using Christ's example of serving. Oh, it's filled with a lot of theological hot points here. And we could look at a lot of these. We mentioned a few of these, but this passage was never penned by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we would debate them. They're not here for argumentation. They're here so that we could follow them. We could apply them to our life. As a result of following Christ's example, that's how the church will experience unity as a people. Unity isn't the result of preaching on unity. It's the result of people adoring the Lord Jesus, emulating Him, adopting His mindset. The more we behold His glory and imitate His character, the more unified we will be as a church. There's two parts here, as I mentioned, joined by the wherefore, verse 9. We see the self humbling of the Lord Jesus in verses 6 through 8. And then we find the exaltation of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. I want us to see tonight this completion of the story of Christ, the, the story of Christmas. For if you end the story of Jesus simply at the crucifixion, we don't have the whole story. The cross is not the end of the story for God highly exalted him and that's quite significant so let's look at the exaltation in two parts two thoughts tonight number one out of verse number nine i want you to see his exalted position 
Verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. This highly exalted position. This passage also reminds us that Jesus demonstrates for us that spiritual principle that whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. <clears throat> you never humble yourself before God and lose. You never exercise humility and lose. And the Lord Jesus demonstrates that. The humiliation of Christ was fully compensated by God. In fact, it was totally reversed. In verse number six, notice, who being in the form of God, <clears throat> excuse me, he did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. Notice verse nine, God highly exalted him. <clears throat> verse seven, he emptied himself. But notice verse nine, God has given him a name that is above every name. Notice verse seven, <clears throat> he took the form of a servant. But at verse number 10 says, at the very mention of his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Verse number eight, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Verse number 11, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God fully compensated, in fact, in many ways reversed that action of the Lord Jesus in self-humiliation. Thank you. He highly exalted him. Verse 9, when it uses that phrase, highly exalted, it's an emphatic use of the, of the verse, of, the, of the, uh, uh, the words here, so that we could say it this way, God super exalted Christ. See, God lifted Jesus above everything. God exalted him to the highest place. God raised him to a position of supreme majesty. Jesus is no more presented here as a mere baby in a manger or a great teacher or a mighty prophet or a miracle worker. No, we worship, we serve, we trust the super exalted Christ, eternally worthy of an exclusive name, sovereign and his kingship and rulership. The father highly exalted his son, Jesus Christ. It's incomparable self-humiliation it leads to a super exaltation. Notice the source of the exaltation. Verse number nine, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Christ didn't exalt himself. He could have done whatever he wanted to do as God, but he did not exalt himself here. He also was not and is not exalted by man either. We sometimes speak of exalting Christ. We want to exalt him in the service, exalt him in our worship. But actually in worship, we're not exalting him in the sense that the father exalted his son. In worship, we're simply acknowledging him. We're affirming him. We're adoring him. We're affirming Acknowledging and adoring the exaltation that the Father made of His Son. 
Because it was God who highly exalted God. It's a done deal. We don't have to do it. He's done it. We're recognizing it. We're adoring Him. So it's, it's an emphasis here of, of an emphatic emphasis, super exaltation, but it's also a once and for all exaltation. Jesus is the exalted Christ. The exaltation of Christ, it's really rooted in what we've looked at, and that is the, the resurrection. So I, Paul goes on to say in the next couple of chapters that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. That physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock of faith because the, red, the resurrection was God's validation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. God stamped his approval on the humiliation of Christ when he raised him from the dead. The great message of the resurrection is Jesus is alive. And that changes absolutely everything. But not only the resurrection, but we find this exaltation rooted in his ascension as well. When Christ was brought forth out of the grave, conquering sin, death in the grave, but he was also exalted into heaven, exalting himself over the earth. That's why we're reminded of the fact that, that he's ruler, he's sovereign, he's Lord, he's king. Not just when he was here, but over the entire universe. But not only the resurrection, the ascension, but also the coronation. The coronation of Christ tells us where he went when he left this planet. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us that he sitted at the right hand of the Father. So the resurrection, Christ was exalted over sin, the grave, death. In his ascension back into heaven, he was exalted over time and space. But in the coronation, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, his exaltation over every name that is named. That's why in verse number eight says that, or verse number nine, that he was given a name which is above every name. A name which is above every name. The name that represents that of Superiority over every other name would be Lord. Jesus is victorious over all of his enemies. The Lord has purchased a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And what's astonishing to me is that as believers, we can know him. The one who's highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. The Lord Jesus Christ. We as children of the living God, we know the King of glory. A year or so ago, back when we were still in the, um, in the midst of the election cycle, the presidential election cycle, I was asked to be on a conference call with then Vice President Mike Pence along with two other pastors that I didn't know. And so we were brought on and the three pastors introduced themselves and, and then Vice President Pence got on the phone and, and he knew our names because he was given that to him. He was very cordial, polite as, as you would expect a, a statesman of a man like that to be. And um, though he said 
our names. The truth is, I knew more about him than he knew about me. The vice president of the United States could say my name. But that pales in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ who's been exalted above absolutely everyone and everything whom I know personally and he personally knows me. The wonder of it all is that Jesus, the Lord of glory, who is in a class by himself, knows us and he loves us. I say, child of God, it ought to move us to fall on our face, lift up our voice in praise and adoration to the King of kings who has lavished us with astonishing grace, love, and mercy. So we see the highly exalted position of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's highly exalted. And we find in His exalted position, it leads to in verse 10 and 11, our adoration, and our confession. Notice in verse number 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, verses 10 and 11 explains the intended purpose of this exaltation and the proper response to this exaltation. In verse number 10, he reminds us that God's rulership, Christ's lordship, it's not going to be denied. The bowing of the knee pictures submission and surrender. And I believe this verse is teaching us that the bowing of the knee is to the proper physical posture in response to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's why on Sunday mornings, our worship time, it follows that pattern. Because when it comes time to worship, just as when a dignitary or celebrity enters a room and people stand, applaud, or cheer, but if Christ were to walk into that same room, none, no one of us would stand. No one of us would be able to stand. Every knee would bow before Him. The extent of this mandated reverence for the exalted Christ as every knee should bow. And then he punctuates the point by outlining the three places where the knee must bow before Christ. It says in heaven and in earth and under the earth. In heaven, all angelic beings will bow before Christ and do so. In earth, every human being bow before Christ and under the earth refers to the dead human beings and the fallen spirits will bow before him in other words no knee in the universe will be excluded be it human angelic or demonic every knee will one day bow either in spontaneous ecstasy or with grudge grudging mourning and shame the holy angels in heaven will bow before Christ. The glorified spirits of the redeemed will bow before Christ. The Christ followers on earth will bow before Christ. The unbelieving sinners in the world who put off Christ because it was not convenient to trust Him and take Christ to be their personal Savior, they too will bow before Christ. 
the devil and his demons and all the lost souls in hell will bow before Christ. The truth is, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, you're not certain that your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life. You have the great privilege of accepting Him, placing your faith and trust in Him now. But if you reject Him, what you do with Jesus here and now in this life will determine what happens to your soul in eternity. And you will bow before Him, either now by choice or later out of shame. Then verse number 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 11 is a reminder, not just the fact that every knee will bow, but verse number 11 is a reminder that the Lordship of Christ, His rulership, His authority, His sovereignty over all, it's not going to be debated. You can debate Christ now. You can argue about him now. But there will come a time, verse number 10, the physical response to who Christ is, his highly exalted position, you will bow. And the verbal response to who Christ is and his exalted position, you will confess that he is Lord. So the the great common sense would be accept the one who loves you. Accept the one who knows you, who has lavished you with his love, who died in your place. Take him to be your personal savior put your faith and trust in him everybody's trusting something why not trust the one who loves you who died for you was resurrected and exalted so that he could be your personal savior your living example and your enabler here upon this earth the lord jesus christ jesus christ is lord the lordship of christ And that's what it means as Christians to follow him. His reminder to us is you've got to deny yourself. Why? Because we can't follow the one who is Lord until we recognize we're not. Again, many times have I said that it's a great liberating factor to know he's God and I'm not. But we're going to have to acknowledge that. Christ is not a doctrine simply to be discussed. He's a person to be followed. Verse 11 does declare for us, there's coming a day when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Don't let pride get in your way of not receiving Him now to be your Savior. Don't let pride get in your way. Don't, Don't put off and delay making the best decision you'll ever make. Let me give you just a concluding thoughts. Try memorizing this passage. You can carry it with you everywhere you go. It's a great gift, Philippians chapter 2. It's memorable, and we can dwell on it regularly, and we should dwell on it regularly. Memorize it. Another thought is, believe the passage. The primary message, I believe, of this passage to the church is this. You humble yourself before God, He'll take care of you. He did it with Jesus. You humble yourself before God, 
He'll take care of you. And then follow the message of the passage. This ought to be our mindset. This ought to be our heart, our attitude, our lifestyle. And then one last one. Let's tell the world about this message. After all, I believe that's one of the reasons he left us here after he saved us. It ought to be our mission to tell the world that Jesus is Lord. If you'll put your faith and trust in him, he'll save your soul. He not only will change your eternity, he'll change your life. Let us adore him. Let our minds be on him. Let our attitude be like his. Let our actions reflect Jesus. All of this is to the glory of God the Father. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let's stand together, please.